Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by Dennis Johnson and Slava Johnson, no relation, of the Western Newly Independent States Enterprise Fund. Slava was appointed as the Western Newly Independent States Enterprise Fund president and CEO in 2015. She has decades of experience in international corporate legal work and has founded organizations such as American Ukraine Business Council and International Law Office in Kyiv. Dennis is an experienced executive in all things finance, credit, and business development as the president and co-owner of Cooperative Housing Resources, LLC. He's got lots of domestic and international business experiences previously and currently sits on multiple boards of directors, including as chair of the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. And the reason I wanted to get both of my colleagues together is this year's the 25th anniversary of the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. Enterprise funds were an innovation set up in the early 90s in the Bush 41 administration. There were 11 of sort of the first wave of enterprise funds in places like Poland, the Czech Republic, the Baltics, Bulgaria, Romania. Many of them were extremely successful as early private equity funds investing in countries that had never had private investment before. This fund was set up in 1994 under the Clinton administration. Several were set up in the Clinton administration. It turns out that both Dennis and Slava were original board members, have been sticking at this for 25 years, a long period of time. And I just think it's a really interesting opportunity to learn more about the Western NIS Enterprise Fund, but also so sort of the concept of enterprise funds and also the evolution of the economies of Ukraine and Moldova, the two countries that they've been working in for 25 years. So Slava, can I start with you? What was the Western NIS Enterprise Fund like when this was started? Because you were living in Ukraine in 1994. Yes, I was living in Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine was still very much the Soviet Union, even though the political government changed in December of 1991. The fact remains there was really no economic change in the last three years. Very little investment, uh, although as a lawyer, I was guiding American companies to come in and invest in Ukraine. But there was no large-scale investment in Ukraine. And most of the situation was the society was very poor. Inflation was very high. There were no, virtually no cars in the streets in Kiev, if you can imagine, Dan. There was no traffic jam, so it was easy enough. And uh, everyone was eking out a living as best they could. You know, it was not an environment that was conducive to large-scale investment. So how did you get the phone call to join this enterprise fund? I got a phone call from the White House, and I think um, one of the congressmen from Illinois had heard of my work in the region, because I started working in Poland, first of all. And he, he knew I was Ukrainian, and he knew that I had, was guiding a couple of American companies to do some work in Ukraine. And he apparently gave my name to the White House when the Enterprise Fund was contemplated for Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus, and I got the call. Dennis, thanks for joining us. How did they find you to get involved with the Enterprise Fund? Basically the same way. One of the Minnesota congressmen uh, contacted me to see if I'd be interested in being on the board because of my agricultural background. And in the early 90s, I had done some uh, work for uh, AID in Russia, Poland, and Bulgaria. And so he was aware of that background and uh, interaction because we'd reported to him. And uh, because, like I said, the agricultural background, the same thing, he called, asked if I'd be interested, and, uh, and pretty soon I had a White House call, and uh, next thing I knew, I was on the board. Okay, but Dennis, over the 25 years, for a variety of reasons, the fund has ultimately, ironically, not done a lot in agriculture. Why is that? 
I don't know that I have a good answer for that because we tried. Early on, we made several investments in uh, what was called machine redistribution companies that were there to uh, help uh, provide mechanized machinery for the farming operations. Uh, and uh, a part of our problem was in most cases, we had difficulty getting parts and equipment through customs in both countries. Uh, so it was never available in, uh, in a lot of cases when it was needed. The cooperative farms have basically been uh, liquidated, but they are still controlled by large agricultural operations who have had access to the land. That's not the type of companies we would invest in, and so it just never worked out. So you started coming to Ukraine at least 25 years ago, Dennis. Can you talk about the changes that have happened in Ukraine? Changes are remarkable. As Slava was just saying, my first trip was in uh, October of 1995, uh, along with my wife. That was the uh, first time we'd been to Ukraine. Everything was dark. It was bleak. There were machine gun guards in the hotel we stayed in. There were the babushkas on each floor that watched you come and go. Uh, there was no traffic. There was no restaurants. Uh, we left, and my wife said, why would you bring me to a country like this? <laughs> and since then, it has changed dramatically. I mean, today there's traffic jams on uh, Krushatik. Everything is colorful. We were back there in 2004. Uh, and spent a month in Kiev because Natalie Dresko, our CEO, was out on maternity leave at the time. And uh, Vicky came with me, and we were there for uh, a month. And uh, we'd walk down to the uh, office uh, each morning, and uh, she'd go spend the day walking around. Everything was colorful. There was young people in the park walking around with uh, young men in suits and young women in colored dresses and high heels, and uh, uh, no fear of walking anywhere at all in Ukraine or in Kiev at the time. And of course, today, since the revolution of dignity, it's changed dramatically in terms of uh, thinking and culture and approach and style to the uh, country. It's becoming more European. Uh, it's all always was a beautiful uh, architectural community uh, with the uh, architectural work in uh, Kiev. It's just totally different. I mean, it's just a remarkable change, sea change in 25 years. Slava, tell me about who is Natalie Juresko, because Dennis has raised her. Why is she important in this conversation? Well, Natalie Juresko was one of our first employees at the fund in 1995. She had worked as an economic officer at the U.S. Embassy. And eventually, when the fund was set up, she asked to be an employee, and she joined. Uh, over the years, she became the CEO and president of the fund. And then when we created Horizon Capital, we spun off Horizon Capital as a private equity fund. She was part of the group that created, helped create Horizon Capital. She took that role as well. So in, Natalie, in 2014, Natalie was appointed Minister of Finance of Ukraine. And this was the, right after the revolution of dignity, and Ukrainian needs needed someone who could tighten the belt and, and, and control the finances of the com country because the situation was dire. So Natalie decided to take the challenge, and so I stepped down from the board and was appointed CEO of, of the fund after that. But Natalie is a very dynamic person, uh, Harvard-educated, willing to spend—she's uh, a diaspora. She's a, a child of a diaspora parents like I am, and she's from Chicago. And so she was willing to face the challenge and to restructure Ukraine. Ukrainian debt at the time was sorely needed. So she's an American citizen. Yes. What's she doing now? She's now in the Puerto Rico financial board. There's a board that was appointed by Congress to help Puerto Rico restructure its debt. And so she is, she's become a workout expert, and she's applying the same skills she learned in Ukraine to work with all the debtors to make the creditors to get Ukraine finance solid. She's doing the same for Puerto Rico right well, now. Well, so if I'm sorry to mention this, I just recently joined the, the WNIS board, just as full disclosure, and so I was at the 25th anniversary, and I got to finally meet Natalie Jurasko, someone who I've always admired, so someone I consider a hero for our time, and was sort of a, an alum of the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. But you've had several other people, Slava, 
who've passed through the offices of WNIS have gone on to government service. Tell yeah. us about the other two well, folks. Well, we have um, Alexander Daniluk, and actually all three of them were Minister of Finance of Ukraine. After Natalie left, Alexander Daniluk was Minister of Finance of Ukraine as well. And most recently, Oksana Makarova was one of our employees at the fund who also became Minister of Finance. So we have um, obviously a strong interest in the financial and economic stability of the country. And all three of them have closely worked with IMF and worked with all the international financial institutions to make sure that Ukraine is on the right path economically. Okay, so Slava, if you couldn't invest in agriculture, Dennis was saying, you know, as an agriculture expert, and they looked at it and said, mm, this is going to be tougher than we thought. What did you invest in over the last 25 years? We invested in a, a much broader uh, spectrum of companies. We invested in uh, ice cream. We invested in brick construction materials for a while. We invested in banks. We, in fact, set up the only mortgage bank in Ukraine because in 2007, uh, there was no mortgages. You couldn't, couldn't borrow money to buy a house. You had to have cash. And the way Ukrainians built houses at the time was they had the cash. They started building the house. When they ran out of brick, the house stood unbuilt until the next, they raised some more money, and they built the next layer of brick. That's why the old houses have different color bricks, because that's that's how you built the house. It may take 10, 15 years to build the house that way. But we decided that we needed a mortgage bank. So we set up something called the International Mortgage Bank. We encouraged the government to adopt loan mortgages which was a major accomplishment. And as a result of that, that bank started to, once we piloted the project, other banks decided that mortgage lending was okay with the legislation in place. Eventually, that bank became Platinum Bank, and we eventually sold the bank. But that was, you know, those are the kinds of investments we had to make. We did a little bit of everything because we, you know, we knew that we couldn't be focused only on agriculture. So, but we had other areas that were that were successful. Banking, of course, other banking too. Talk about Moldova. You've also been an investor in Moldova. Talk about yes. what's your role been in Moldova. In Moldova, we are the largest foreign investors in Moldova. We've been that since the middle 90s. We've invested in breweries, in banks several times. And so our stake in the economy is significant. On the development side, uh, Moldova was less effective. First of all, it's a very small country. It's about two and a half million, three million people. It's the size of one of the oldest, one of the regions of Ukraine. And uh, and the Moldovans really are ambivalent about what they want to do, whether they want to be Moldovans, whether they want to be Romanians, whether they want to live in Moldova and abroad. So development-wise, it's not as successful. But investment-wise, it's been very successful. One of the companies we're trying to sell right now is a Moldovan company. Our uh, Horizon colleagues have also invested in breweries and in wineries and have just recently IPO'd a, a Moldovan winery company. So Moldova has been successful in many ways, but not the way that we thought it was going to be successful. Tell us the story about the bank in Moldova and why that investment was important. We were invested twice in the Moldovan Agro-In Bank, which was a, a bank that was successful, but it was a standout. We invested the first time around, and we sold the shares. And then most recently, we were approached by the Moldovan government to see if we can invest again in, in Mayib Bank, precisely because the entire banking industry in Moldova was pretty much in Russian hands, and Moldova wanted to break away from that. So we put together a consortium, three, our investment EGF3. And Sorry, we, what's that? Well, EGF3 is the Emerging Europe Growth Fund, one of the Horizon Capital Funds. One, one that, of the children of WNIS. Yes, and we, we have a $30 million stake in it, so yeah. we're obviously interested in, in, in success. So we were part of the team that put it together, and we were able to completely change the character of the banking industry in Moldova. And we were told at the outset that if you set up a bank, Moldovans will take money out of Russian banks and come to you. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, so Dennis, we had the Western newly independent states enterprise fund, which was mainly Moldova and Ukraine. Just for a minute, talk about there was a moment where it also included Belarus. What happened? That was kind of a misadventure, if I can describe it that way. I mean, it was. Our original geography charge was Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus. 
And we aggressively opened offices in all three countries in 1995 when we started. And we maintained an office in Belarus for about two years, but we were never able to do any business in Belarus. Uh, because of the government and everything else. Uh, we did have at least one uh, person from Belarus who was on our staff in Kiev who worked for us for many years. Finally, we just made a request to uh, USAID that we be uh, able to close our offices in Belarus and not do any more business. This is in 1997. Correct. Yeah, we operated offices for two years. And I mean, we never did any business, never identified any potential investments. Uh, we just had a secretary and an admin assistant and a, a driver, I think. Well, if things were to change in Belarus, I don't know. You know, we got peace in our time in Belarus, and it's a very tough place. But let's say they decided they didn't want to be a full-on vassal state of the Russians. Never say never? I would say never say never. I mean, the challenge we have today is that we have our resources pretty well committed to Ukraine and Moldova, so we'd have to have some new funding if we were going to do some work in, uh, in Belarus. But to back that up, the uh, second private fund, EEGF2, did invest in a bank in Minsk and owned that for a couple of years and sold it at a profit. So they have done business, you know, through us and our sister organization, our daughter organization, we have done business in Belarus in recent years. So, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out. It's just the resources to do it. So, Dennis, just just for our listeners, and we have a global audience, there was the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. It was a $150 million fund. So the money came from the U.S. Congress, but it was supported by the Clinton administration and USAID is who set up the fund and supported you guys, Right. Yeah, the fund was set up independently, but our grants or the funding was, was the money, administered the, the 150, by AID. The $150 million was given to you all in a form of grant. You set up the fund. Right. But they wrote you the checks. Correct. The checks can have their name on the check. Right. And then you've had a long-term partnership with AID since then, or an ongoing relationship with AID. Is that a way to describe it? Yeah, it's a long-term relationship. One of the challenges when this first started is the whole enterprise fund concept was new. And it was set up with the idea that it would be funded by the U.S. government, but the boards of all of these funds would be independent private directors, private business people from the U.S. And so initially, there was some real conflict between this process because AID was accustomed to granting the funds to grantees under their direction and control and supervision. These funds were not set up that way. They were set up as independent, but the money had to come through AID. We were far enough in the later development stage that a lot Inversion of Version 2.0. Yeah, a lot of those battles had been fought before we were there, but we still had some when we started. And eventually it became more of a uh, oversight partnership. We worked together on making sure things got done. There was certain information they needed. We understood that. Uh, we tended to make sure we provided it for them, and they tended to understand our independence and what we needed to do and uh, what we needed to control. And then in 2015, when we started the legacy programs, then we came back more under an agreement with AID that uh, there is more supervision. There's some more oversight as part of that. We're still independent. We're still doing what uh, we think is best, but uh, we've become much uh, closer in our working relationship than we were before. I think initially our investment decisions were totally our own. There was no, we didn't have to clear anything with USAID. Under the legacy programs, I think there was a decision to permit us to do the legacy program from the fund, a decision that we should have certain development goals. And this is the first time we actually had development goals. This is Slava. You had you made a lot of profits over time. That's right. And the question is, well, how do we spend the profits? Do we That's reinvest right. in other invest for-profit right. investments? That's right. Or do we use it in the form of grants, almost like a foundation to do That's a right. series of 
development and social things that the WNIS calls legacy, legacy. projects. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. So under the legacy program, we had certain development goals, and one was export promotion, one was local economic development, impact investment, and economic leadership. And even in this case, the four topics were very, very broad. We were not told we had to do certain kinds of things. We're given very, we agreed that these are the four topics we'd pursue, and we pursued them, and we pursued them at our own discretion. Slava, what is Horizon Capital? There's WNIS, then there's a, there's something called Horizon Capital. Horizon Capital set up a series of three funds, yeah. and then you've got a legacy yeah. fund. Talk yeah. about what are yeah. each of those. Horizon Capital is a spin-off daughter fund to our fund. We They were set up to help us attract private investment. Prior to that, all of our investment came from this pool of money. This that $150 million dollars yeah. that were granted yeah. from AID. And then some reflows. We had some reflows. We had from a total the profits. $186 million total we were able to invest. But when we set up Horizon in capital, and that was a model in Poland. Other 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 funds had done that before. It's not that it was that creative for our purposes. We set up Horizon Capital; they could attract other investments. So Horizon would invest and invest not only with the money that that the limited partners put up, but invest money that comes from private organizations, other other investors, companies, other IFIs, whoever they find who's interested. So they usually have a consortium of people in each investment, and when they sell the business, they divide the money among themselves. We have since we became a legacy, embarked on our legacy program, our development program in 2015, we were also permitted to take some of the proceeds of any asset that we sell, to take half of it and put it into a private fund that we could use, our board controls now. And that is focused on, on startups. So it's so Ventures is our small fund. And we only had $5 million initially in it, but we invested it in 10 startup companies, early stage startup companies in Ukraine, all of which are in the IT industry. IT is a growing sector in Ukraine. Ukraine's known for its well-educated engineering and, and STEM students. And as a result, they are doing some innovative, creative ideas, and that's the area where we're investing. So let me just be sure our listeners understand this. Are either you paid for your work with the enterprise fund? No. Well, I am as a CEO now, okay. but board, but member, board members, members are not. Dennis, you ever been paid for the work? So you've been 25 years of free labor? 25 years of uh, volunteer work. That's right. Yeah, that was okay. part of the whole deal. We have public service. Public service. Because the American government asks you to do it. Correct. Okay. And you too, Slaughter, right? Our expenses right? are covered. They'll pay for your travel, but you're no not getting the salary. No compensation. Right? For 20 years, out of 25 years, I was not paid at all. I was just simply my airline tickets were covered. But the last five years when I'm CEO, I do you have, have a day. Com- this is you know, your day job. That's my day job. That's okay. my day job. I wanted to clarify. So the Enterprise Fund set up almost a subsidiary organization called Horizon Capital. It wasn't the first time Enterprise Funds had done this. Other Enterprise Funds had done this. And it was a way to attract capital. Now, the Horizon Capital has attracted $800 million mm-hmm. of money that's not enterprise fund money yeah, yeah. Okay. for the three EEGF oh. and EEGF1 and EEGF2 and EEGF3, yeah, right. which are funny names for these three funds that were set up so that limited partners, people could put money in. And so of the $800 million, most of it is not what we'd call development finance companies. This isn't IFC, International Finance Corporation, though they've put some money in. This is not just the EBRD, which is an important institution in Central and Eastern Europe. This has been family offices. This has been pension funds. So you've attracted, in addition to the money that you had, you've attracted $800 million, almost a billion dollars of private capital into Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus. Actually, I want to clarify something, Dan. Horizon Capital is not a subsidiary. It's a totally independent organization. It's an organization. independent organization. Excuse me. Yeah, it's an independent organization. Spun it's out. a spinoff because when we closed on EEGF in 2006, we simultaneously helped create Horizon Capital, and all of our employees transferred to Horizon right. Capital. And we had to contract with Horizon. So you have an arm's-length relationship. Correct. Now. Got it. Correct. Okay, thank you. Now, we did, in EEGF, we did invest $25 million 
of our enterprise fund. Right, money. as part of kind of your goodbye, you said, okay, 25, how much was an EEGF-1? Well, it's EEGF-1 was 25. No, but how much was the total for EEGF? Oh, 132. Okay, so 132 million of money other than enterprise fund money. Correct. That's the idea is Correct. you guys put some money in and put some money at risk, but then a whole bunch of, you got multiples and multiples of other money to show up because the enterprise fund had a track record and Horizon Capital now after 13 years has its own fabulous track record. I went to the investment meeting for the Horizon Capital and they had, it was sort of the, you know, the every the who's who of an, in, in international investors in the world had somebody there, right? I mean, it's, right. it's had a fabulous track record. So the profits of both the enterprise fund and the profits of Horizon Capital, some of which has been allocated towards legacy activity. What are the kinds of legacy activities of the money that you're doing for good works? Let's put aside the venture money, which is great. What are you doing on a purely good works basis at the moment? Well, we helped Ukraine with, first of all, we have four topics. Export promotion was very important after the revolution of dignity in 2013-2014. Ukraine lost its market to Russia, essentially, and to some They got of, a divorce from they Russia. They got a divorce of Russia, an armed divorce, in fact. Yeah. So as a result, Ukraine had to find new markets. And so we helped fund the strategic development plan for Ukrainian um, uh, sort of roadmap for how to, how to invest in, how to attract foreign capital and export opportunities. And that was one of the programs. Local economic development became very important. Ukrainian cities and villages, especially the smaller cities and villages, needed some a boost. They had not; they've been ignored by the government for years, and uh, and the Soviet Union never did much for the small community. So we developed that program. Impact investment to invest in entrepreneurs who are disadvantaged and give them an opportunity to um, raise capital for them so they can invest in new businesses. Uh, small and medium entrepreneurship is essential to Ukraine. Only 15 percent of Ukrainian businesses fill in that category, and most developed countries have 80 to 90 percent. And so Ukraine has a long way to go, and we, we, we felt we had to finance these businesses because banking interest rates were too high. Economic Leadership Program is a program that uh, built civil society through uh, improved educational opportunities, both studying abroad in the United States and MBA, LLM, and MPP programs, as well as uh, doing scholarships and research uh, opportunities at, at Stanford, in Canada, all over. Slava, are you optimistic about the future of Ukraine and Moldova? Sure. I, I'm very optimistic about Ukraine. Our work in economic leadership, especially with the Ukrainian Leadership Academy, the young people, it shows me that the next generation of Ukrainians is willing to come up and start serving and work for Ukraine. And the same in Moldova, the opportunity is is different. Moldova economically is sounder, but in terms of its population, they're less interested in staying in Moldova. Okay. So, Dennis, let me ask the last question for you. So, what what's the future of this enterprise fund? What's it going to look like? Are we still going to be in business five or 10 years from now? Well, I hope so. We have, as we've mentioned, we have several investments yet to liquidate. And I think we're realistic to optimistic that those investments are going to generate enough funds that we can continue with both our legacy programs and maybe some new ones, as well as continuing our U ventures and in ventures in startups. So, yeah, I think we we will be around. The fund will be around. I don't know if we'll be around, but the, but the fund <laughs> will be around. I expect both of you to be around, yes. <laughs> Thanks, you both, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on 25 years, and thanks for both of you for your public service. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 